Well, good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, please open it to the book of Philippians. And as you're turning there, I want to say how much I've been looking forward to the time when Pastor Cody asked me to preach this morning. On behalf of my wife, Jamie, and our three boys, Maverick, Griffin, and Jude, thank you for having us today. Philippians chapter 1 is where we will be this morning, in verses 27 through 30. The Apostle Paul writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Will you pray with me? Father, We are seeking your help this morning. Fathers, we just sing, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Father, we ask that you bless this this morning as we come to thee. We ask that your spirit does the work of illumination this morning, Father, so we can understand your text and apply it. We ask these things through your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as Brother Rock lets you know, I do serve now down in a church near Miami. It is, as you can imagine, just a little different from Callahan. I was trying to think of the many different nations and cultures that are represented in my church. I was speaking with Jamie yesterday or... Or this morning, I don't remember, of the different countries. And I wrote down several of the, of the countries that are represented in my one church, First Baptist Church of Weston. Allow me to rattle them off for you. We have represented India, London, Liverpool, Taiwan, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Portugal, Argentina, Jamaica, Mexico, Peru, El Salvador, Turks and Caicos, South Africa, Colombia... And Brazil. You know, my only exposure to any kind of culture outside of the English-speaking world was when we'd go to the Mexican restaurant after church on Sundays. (laughs) Not so much anymore. We hear all kinds of different languages. We experience multiple different cultures. Being inside of many different folks' house within our church, we've seen how they express themselves that represent uh, their culture, represent whom they are and where they are from. We've been inside of folks' homes where it's uh, an absolute necessity to take your shoes off, not just because you just don't want to get a, a few grains of sand on your floor, but because back home, only God knows what was out in the streets and you were walking through. Uh, Some of the cultures that are represented in our church, it would be disrespectful to be able to look at each other in the eyes. We have experienced 
uh, different kinds of food. We've experienced all kinds of things that are representing the cultures of the people that are inside of our church. They act differently. They sometimes speak differently. I have a brother inside of the church. His name is Kishore, and he's from India. And apparently inside of the the culture as to where he's from, you don't say, I love you. So I make this brother say, I love you. Every single thing. Kishore, I love you, brother. Yes, pastor, I know. No, 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 no. I love you. That means you have to say it back. But you know, you're not all too unfamiliar with uh, really acting in a particular way that reflects as to where you are from. And we've raised our boys to speak to men and women in a very particular way, always referring to them as ma'am and sir. We've taught them that on Saturdays in the South, you watch college football, amen. You're not unfamiliar with needing to act a particular way because that reflects who you are. It reflects where you're from. It reflects your culture. There is an expectation, really, that a citizen of a particular area or country, there is an expectation that they're going to behave in a very particular way that reflects the values. It reflects the culture of the country that they are from. In our text today, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a church that's found in a Roman colony. And they have received this award, as it were, to be a Roman citizen. And this was bestowed on them from Octavian, who was soon to be Caesar Augustus. There's your history lesson for the day. This happened just a century before the Apostle Paul wrote to the uh, Philippians. Now, the Roman citizen, it was, it was conferred to every single citizen of Philippi. And boy, let me tell you what, they took that citizenship very, very seriously. Even Paul at one point, you, you might remember this text, where he was being flogged. He was beaten terribly. And then all of a sudden he, he says, all right, now you boys listen here. I'm a Roman citizen. What did those guys do? <laughs> They step back real quick and they begin to really think over as to what they were doing to a Roman citizen. Everybody was proud to be a Roman citizen. And they were expected to act like a Roman citizen. They were expected to never bring Caesar any kind of shame. And Paul picks up on this theme as he's writing to these Philippian Christians. And we're going to see that this same exact concept is applied to the Philippian Christians. Now, in our text that we've already read this morning, we find that in the English there are two longer sentences. One of them a very long run-on sentence. But in the original language, we find that this is actually just one sentence. And within this one sentence, there is only one verb. Now, if you know your grammar, you know that if there is a verb, a really in particular one verb, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on this one particular verb. And this one verb that I'm referring to is translated into English as the word conduct. 
Now, I read from the New King James Version, and it's translated, this word, it's actually translated into a phrase, and it's only let your conduct be. Uh, The New American Standard Version, it's actually translated into the phrase, only conduct yourselves. So the word itself actually is defined as to be a citizen, but it's fascinating that as we see this word citizen, when it's being translated into a verb, we see that it's no longer just on the, the who you are, but rather it's what you are doing and how you are behaving. Paul says in a couple of chapters just after we read here that he's calling the Philippians citizens of heaven. He uses the exact same phrase because Jesus is the Lord of these Christians, not Caesar. So therefore, he says that your citizenship must, uh, must produce a particular behavior. Another way that maybe we could rephrase this particular um, verse here as to what we've read, we could maybe say it this way, and this is Brian's definition. This is Brian's translation. Only let your conduct or only let your behavior as citizens of heaven be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, as the apostle is charging them by saying, let your behavior reflect this, he follows it up by saying, whether I am with you or whether I am not with you, you better act like you're a Christian. So the entire theme of our passage here today is to ensure that our conduct matches the gospel itself. That our behavior matches our citizenship. And as we're going to see here shortly throughout our entire time together, we're going to see that Paul is going to teach that our conduct doesn't just happen. God just doesn't zap you and then you begin to behave correctly. No, rather, our behaviors are shaped. Today we are... We're going to see that citizens of heaven have their conduct shaped by particular circumstances. First, we're going to see that our conduct is shaped by selfless solidarity. Secondly, we will see that our conduct is shaped by our sovereign salvation. And finally, this morning, we will find that our conduct is shaped by specific suffering. Let's start how our conduct is shaped by selfless solidarity. Read with me verse 27 again. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. And those are two very important phrases. One spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire for the church, scattered throughout many of his letters, as he said in many different places, specifically I think of Ephesians chapter 4, where he's explaining to these Christians that you need to walk worthy of your calling. He says the same thing to the church in Thessalonica, walk worthy of your calling. 
Now, while he doesn't say this here in this particular text, it's implied. He says that our conduct must be worthy of the gospel. Now, how does he describe that we are to do this task? How is our conduct, how is our behavior being shaped? Well, the first thing that comes out of Paul's mouth is that our conduct is shaped by the church. He says that we need to have selfless solidarity, or we need to be selflessly unified with one another, and that's all done into the context of the church. Beloved, this isn't something that we do just here on Sunday mornings. Church is what we do all day long, all week long. We just come together on Sundays to worship together. The only way that one is able to truly have this kind of thinking about being selfless is when we are putting each other's needs in front of our own. Really, in many ways, this entire book of Philippians really centers on putting others before yourself. If you were to look at chapter number 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord or one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each Esteem others better than himself. But each of you look not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Beloved, when we are like-minded as what Paul here is uh, commanding us to be, when we have the same love, we automatically begin to operate in one mind and one spirit as what our verse says. When we are doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but rather we are treating others better than ourselves, we are operating in the way that Paul is telling us to. Paul actually is even using some military terms. He tells us that we need to stand firm, that we need to to strive together He says like how a a soldier must stand firm to be able to hold the ground so that the enemy doesn't come by. Therefore, Christian soldier, strive together for the gospel. As a a Christian soldier is is, uh, with one mind, he's comparing it to the soldiers to ensure that the mission is being completed and all is cared for and all is accomplished Strive together with one mind, with one spirit, beloved. But why do we do this? Why is it that we are, we are striving together with one mind? Why with, with oneness, with togetherness? Why are we doing it? What is the end goal? The end goal is what Paul says is for the faith of the gospel. Beloved, everything... Everything comes right back to the gospel. The end goal of having our conduct shaped by the unifying church is for the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as we read through this, did you see any rules or regulations that Paul is giving us here so that we can be able to do this together? No. 
The only thing that he gives us is Jesus. The only thing that he gives us is the Son of God. He says, because of Jesus, work together as one man with one voice for the glory of God through Jesus. Now, let's kind of put a little spin on this and think of this negatively. Imagine a church that's really, in many ways, doing the opposite of this. Imagine a church that is selfish. Imagine a church that is not unified. They are not allowing the brethren to shape their conduct towards holy living. What do you think is going to happen? Well, things obviously are going to be a disaster for that church. It'll be a disaster for the people that are inside of the church, but honestly, it's going to be a disaster for the people that are on the outside of the church as well. Thinking specifically of those who are within the church, the Christians are not going to be able, inside of this church, to be able to practice their gifts on one another, not going to be able to serve one another, not going to be able to keep each other accountable. There isn't one voice, but in chaos, there's multiple voices. But thinking from the perspective of somebody that's on the outside of the church, what does that look like to them? A disorganized, disunified church. What does it look like to the unbeliever? Well, it's not a really good testimony, is it? There's a lot of people who have never even set foot inside of a church, yet they know that the church is supposed to look different, act different, and sound different. Allow me to read you a quote from a pastor that I really believe hits it on the head of the nail when it comes to this. He writes, when the unsaved church look or rather when the unsaved looks at the church and they do not see holiness, purity, and virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel it proclaims. When pastors commit gross sins and are later restored to positions of leadership in the church, when the church members lie, steal, cheat, gossip, and quarrel, and when congregations seem to care little about sin and hypocrisy in their midst, the world is understandably repulsed by their claims to love and to serve God. And the name of Jesus is sullied and dishonored. The way that you act inside of this church doesn't just stay inside of this church. It also goes out there. And you know this. Friends, when we are striving towards holiness together, when we are looking out for each other's interests together, our conduct is shaped by that. If I care about your holiness, do you think that I'm going to care about my holiness as well? If I'm helping you as, as one of your friends to, to, to be accountable to the Lord, do you think that I'm going to be doing the same thing for my soul as well? And, and really even the inverse. If I'm not showing you that I care, go and live. Do what you want to do. Eat, drink, and be merry. Do you think that I'm really going to care about my holiness? You see how this works. So our conduct must be shaped by the unifying solidarity that's found within the church. But secondly, our conduct must be shaped by our sovereign salvation. Now, many times when we put the word sovereign in front of the word salvation, there's, there's a lot of maybe tense thoughts that might come up. 
So before we jump into the deep end here, let's, let's just come and put our toes into the water and, and test the waters and see where we all are. We're going to interact here. Ready? Salvation is from who? This is where you say the Lord. Okay? Let's try that again. Who, who is salvation of? Who is it from? It's the Lord. Yes. Great job. We're off to a wonderful start. What about Lydia? You remember Lydia from the book of Acts? Who opened up her heart so that she could be able to heed the things of the Lord? Who did that? The Lord. Think of Ezekiel chapter 36 when when the the heart surgeon uh, ripped open that chest cavity, took out the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, thumped it, and when it began to thump, it started to beat for the Lord and the Lord opened. Uh, Only who is the open heart surgeon? That's the Lord. Friends, we shouldn't be dissatisfied when we think about our salvation being in the hands of the sovereign God of the universe. So, let's just keep this in mind as we move forward. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. Paul writes, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you... Of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him. Now we're going to stop right there and we'll save the, less, the rest for a few moments. Uh, my purpose this morning to, is not to convince you of uh, the, the sovereignty of God and, and salvation. That, that's not my desire this morning to try to convince you of that. That's for another time and another place. But rather, my desire this morning is to help you to see that your citizen living and your conduct is to be shaped by this sovereign salvation. When the Christian is gripped by the fact that he has been saved from destruction, their lives should be absolutely marked by that. Now, your church is well as my church, we're Southern Baptists. This is, this is who we are. We, are. we are part of the SBC. And for any covenant member to be part of Gray Gables or Weston, we have to agree, a church member has to agree according to the doctrinal statement, the, the statement of faith, that being the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Well, looking at the different articles concerning salvation, this is what our doctrinal statement says, according to Article 10, God's Purpose of Grace, it reads this way. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which He, that's God, regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It, salvation, excludes boasting and it promotes humility. And that last sentence there, I wanted to emphasize it a little bit more, so allow me to read it to you one more time. It says, it, my salvation, it was brought to me by God. That salvation excludes any kind of boasting, but it actually does the reverse. It promotes humility. Even within our own doctrinal statement, your doctrinal statement, my doctrinal statement, 
We find that a sovereign salvation produces a particular behavior within the Christian. Now, let's, let's step uh, out of this for just a second. Let's dig our heels into the sand for a little bit more. Let's think a little bit more critically about our salvation and what God did for you and what God has done for me. I know how wicked my heart can be. I know how deep the rabbit hole can go with my own sinful behavior, my own sinful tendencies. And I can assume that each of you would agree with me concerning your own hearts. I know about my depravity. I know that that these things prove the utter rebellion that I have towards a sovereign ruler, a good creator, a loving God who knows best. Daily, we shake our fists towards heaven, thumbing our nose towards God, towards the righteous king of the universe, saying that we know best. And if I want something, then I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to get that particular thing. I'm going to run over whoever I need to run over. I'm going to say whatever I need to say in order to fulfill my desires. The scriptures teach that I'm gripped by my own pride while I'm also gripped by the gates of hell. I'm going to march right into hell, hating God more and more every single day. Hell is described by Jesus as utter darkness. It's described where there will be a never-ending gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm never dies, and the flames of hell will never, ever be extinguished. The wicked man who is hell-bent on living his own way will be Thoroughly ruined in everlasting conscience, conscious torment. And those who have been in torment for a thousand years are no closer to the end of their torment from when they even first began. Beloved, this was us, was it not? This was you and I. But because of the great love of our King, because of the great love of our Savior, who is rich in mercy, full of grace, He did not leave you here. He did not leave you in your sin to ruin and torment. Rather, He sent His own Son, and it pleased His Uh, The the majesty of the Father to crush His own Son. His own Son who who took off His crown and He set it to the side. He came to earth just like you and I. He took on our form. He suffered just like you and I did. And He bore the wrath that you and I deserve. The scriptures teach that you have been rescued from the flames of hell by the hound of heaven who saved you by his grace. And he took you who were a, once a dead, rotting, spiritual corpse and he made you alive. 
Does that put some gas in your tank? Because I don't know about you, but that makes the, the hairs on my arms stand up. Can you say amen this morning? Amen. Beloved, if you can't say amen, then maybe it's because you have not experienced this saving that I have just described. Maybe, maybe you need to do is what the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul has said to them. To check, to see if you are truly in the faith. To make sure of your calling and election. Because if this does not excite you, beloved, then I don't know what will. But this salvation that I have described for us this morning, it must shape your conduct. It must shape your conduct. Moving on. What else does our text say here concerning sovereign salvation? Paul says something very interesting. He begins to encourage us not to be terrified. Or or maybe a better translation is that you shouldn't be startled. You shouldn't be alarmed because of your adversaries. Uh, The text says that uh, we should not be in any way terrified by our adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to us a proof of salvation or Of salvation, yes. Paul tells us that your enemies are watching you. So therefore, don't be alarmed by them. If your conduct is being shaped by this salvation of the Lord, then those enemies who are gripped by their Roman citizenship, which does not allow room for more than one Lord, and that one Lord is Caesar... And those adversaries and their worldview would say that you're the one that's heading towards destruction. Uh, They see your loyalty to the real king, the real Caesar, as leading to perdition. But from your perspective, beloved, as what Paul says, you see it as evidence for your salvation. Beloved, I don't need to say anything. You, you guys know the, the world doesn't like us very much, right? They, they kind of hate us. And they're going to kind of do whatever they need to do to throw us under the bus and make us look like we are the immoral ones. But as what Paul says, that's evidence of our salvation. Is it not? Beloved, don't, don't be discouraged over this. Rather, be encouraged. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. So we've seen this morning that our conduct must be shaped by our selfless solidarity. We see that our conduct must be shaped by our sovereign salvation. Finally this morning, I want us to examine this text and see how our conduct must be shaped by what we're going to say is specific suffering. Specific suffering. Let's read 29 and 30. It says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. 
So just like our salvation that we saw just a moment ago, God is also granting our suffering to take place. That actually is the main thrust of this particular verse. Well, this verse states that it is the Lord who grants us to believe. The main thrust that he wants us to be able to see that it is the Lord who is granting us to suffer. Right? That's it's really encouraging this morning, right? Paul says to these Philippian Christians, and by extension, he's speaking to us as well. They're going through suffering. But just like how he has and he's currently is suffering, he's reminding them, you're not going through this alone. But be reminded, you will suffer in a very specific way. Paul tells this to Timothy, Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will suffer. Beloved, this is the will of God for the Christian to suffer. Now, could Paul be saying in, that our suffering is at the hand of the adversaries as to what he just spoke about? Oh, it's possible. But I don't really think that <clears throat> we should try to worry about as to who we are going to suffer by, like in, in whose hands we are going to be in, but rather I think more as to what Paul is wanting us to understand here is what is the result of our suffering? Oh, the suffering that we are in, what is it going to lead to? So in efforts of seeing how suffering does shape our conduct, it's important that we kind of take a brief, a brief look over as to what the, the Bible teaches concerning suffering and what is the result of that suffering. I first want to bring our attention to a text that most of us knew, know, but it would do us good to be reminded of it. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, read this way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James, he's saying here that our trials, our sufferings, our persecutions, our tribulations, what is it doing? It's testing our faith. When our faith is tested, it produces patience. Or we could say that it produces endurance. And when that endurance reaches its full effect, when it has matured, it brings the Christian to where they are lacking nothing. Now, if that's true, if that statement is true, do you believe that that's going to help shape your conduct? Is it going to help shape your behavior and how you act? When the Christian has been put through the ringer, and they have their maturity strengthened, will it result in a worthy life of the gospel? Well, I believe so. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 say this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that when you have been grieved by your sufferings, he says that there's a purpose to it. What is the purpose? So that our faith can be tested by fire. When gold is refined, when silver is refined, what happens as it's passing through the fire? Well, all those impurities rise to the top, do they not? So they can be able to scoop out all the impurities so that you can have a pure gold, a pure silver. Well, what happens when the Christian is refined through fire? All of those impurities rise to the top. They are exposed so that you can scoop them up. Or if we're allowing the church to do it, so the church can be able to help you to repent of those sins. Suffering has multiple purposes, beloved. But I believe that there is actually a greater purpose to our suffering. My mind immediately goes to Psalm 119. In fact, join me there. Psalm 119. I want your eyes to see this because I believe it is very important. Psalm 119, and we'll look at verse 71. This is the bedrock. This is the foundation as to why we suffer. The Psalter says this in verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The psalmist says, it's good that I suffered so that I could be able to be pushed back to the Bible. Friends, when you're suffering, when you're walking through the hardships, when you're walking through the tribulations, it's hard to see, is it not? Sometimes you get lost from all the trees that you're trying to see the forest. There's many times when you are walking through the the, the landscape and you can't see because of all the fog. How many times have you went to the beach and you're trying to see the ocean, but yet all of the waves are just crashing over you and you can't see all of the water is coming on top of you, pushing you down and crashing upon you? The psalmist says, I can't see what's going on, but when I was able to, I was able to see the the commandments of God, the law of God. I was able to see the Lord. And for us who are on this side of the cross, we see Jesus. We get to see the Savior. Now, beloved, there's a lot more that we could say about this. There's there's so much more. But let's get to the bottom line of the bottom line. What, what is it about suffering that's going to, to produce in us? What is it going to serve in us? Simply put, suffering will make us more like Jesus. Suffering sanctifies us. Suffering pushes us back to the Word of God. The specific suffering that God has granted you to walk through has the purpose to ensure that your conduct, that my conduct, it's going to produce a a conduct that we are going to act in, that we are going to behave a certain way that is worthy of 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. God grants us to suffer, and that specific suffering shapes our conduct quite mysteriously, does it not? This is why we say God works in what kind of ways? Oh, boy. In conclusion this morning, as we wrap things up, I believe there might be a question on some of your minds this morning. Okay, Brian, I get it. I get it. My conduct must be shaped by the gospel. It must be matched by the gospel. My behavior must be worthy of Jesus. I get it, Brian. I'm supposed to be here in the church serving one another. I got it, right? Uh, My my conduct is supposed to be shaped by my my salvation. I I hear you, Brian. Yeah, the suffering part, don't really like that too much, but I got it. I understand it. But what if my conduct is still not being changed? What do I do now? Maybe that's reflective as to what you're thinking this morning. How do we move forward from that? Beloved, that's that's a really great question. It truly is. Something that I have become very passionate about since I've moved down to South Florida is understanding more of the Pentecostal, charismatic understandings of the Spirit and how they believe that the Spirit moves and understands, and specifically how the Spirit works. There's a lot to to be said there with that, but I believe that they have a very wrong understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And unfortunately, this this understanding has crept its way into Bible teaching and Bible preaching churches. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Because I believe that this actually really works very much so into our understanding of this text today and how our conduct is being shaped by these three different circumstances. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we see this phrase in the book of Ephesians where Paul says to be filled with the Spirit and when people are filled with the Spirit, husbands will uh, love their wives, wives will love and respect their husbands and submit to them, children will be able to obey their parents, and then he speaks to to masters and slaves and they begin to work uh, in a proper way that is befitting to the gospel. Then we see over in the book of Colossians where it says to be filled with the word, but the exact same results take place. Husbands are loving, wives are submitting, children are obeying, masters and slaves are getting along and doing as to what they are supposed to be doing. So what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Beloved, it is to be filled with the word of God. Who wrote the word of God? The spirit did. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word. To be filled with the Word is to be filled with the Spirit. So if we have this understanding, we need to understand that to be filled with the Spirit does not result in some kind of wild and wacky experience, but rather to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word. And when I am filled with the Word of God, I am filled with the Spirit of God. And if I am filled with the Spirit of God then I'm going to have my mind transformed and I'm going to have my mind renewed day by day while at the exact same time I'm going to be rejecting the desire to be conformed to the world 
And when I'm more filled with the Spirit, the more I live in the Spirit. The more that I live in the Spirit, the more that I begin to walk in the Spirit. You see how this is going, right? The more that I begin to walk in the Spirit, the more I'm able to crucify the flesh. And I'm able to crucify the passions that are so deeply embedded into my mind and my heart. The more I can uh, uh, crucify the flesh the more I begin to bear the fruits of the Spirit. What are the fruits of the Spirit? You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are not just emotions, but you see, there was, there's actual behaviors that are fruits of the Spirit. There are particular behaviors that are born out of being filled with the Spirit. What happens when I'm not filled with the Spirit, though? That's a great question. Let me to quote from you, uh, to you uh, from a brother named John O'Sims, a brother that I'm very influenced by. This is what he said. I've never been ugly to my wife when I've been filled with the Spirit. I've never blown it with my kids when I've been filled with the Spirit. But you can't number the times that I have blown it when I'm filled with myself. Ouch. Beloved, do you have a desire to have your conduct shaped by the gospel that's worthy of the gospel? Do you have this desire? Do you have a desire to behave in a way that's worthy of your Lord and Savior? Paul gives us these three different circumstances that will shape that conduct. Maybe imagine it this way, and this is where we will conclude this morning. Paul gives us these three different circumstances. Maybe you can liken them to the shoes on your feet. Well, what's what's also on your shoes? We've got shoelaces. The circumstances, these three circumstances are the shoes being filled with the Spirit... Are the shoelaces so your feet don't come, your shoes don't come flying off. You can stay filled with the Spirit so that your conduct can be shaped by these circumstances. Maybe think of the the circumstances maybe as a road that you're driving on. What's on the side of the road to help you not fly off the side of the mountain? The guardrails. The guardrail is being filled with the Spirit. So beloved... If you want to have a conduct that is shaped by these circumstances, then be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Word of God. Renew your minds day by day. And I promise you, your pastors promise you, you will have a behavior that is shaped by these things and worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we are grateful for these words. Help us, dear Lord, to work diligently to be filled with your spirit, to be filled with the word of God, Because, Lord, we understand, realize, and see that when we are not filled with the Word, we are not filled with your Spirit, but when we are filled with ourselves, 
our behavior will not match the gospel and we will not be walking worthy as to what you have called us to. So, Father, help us to find great desire to be with the brethren. And I pray for this church. Oh, God, how I love this church. How I miss being here with these people. Father, I lift them up to you and I ask that you help them, dear God, to walk worthy of the gospel and to help each other to walk worthy of the gospel. They need each other. Help them to have a bigger vision, a deeper understanding of the doctrine of the church. Father, help this church. Help me and my family to be filled with your spirit and to have our conduct shaped by these things. Lord, we ask these things through your son's name. Amen.